Hi, I'm Michael Greco, the author of Lighting in the Dramatic Portrait, and you're listening to The Light Source. And welcome to episode 30 of Light Source, the official podcast of StudioLighting.net, the website that introduces photographers to portrait and studio lighting equipment and techniques. I'm Bill Crawford, publisher. And I'm Ed Hidden, exclusive photographer and image expector with iStockphoto.com. On today's show, we have an interview with Michael Greco uh, from MichaelGrecoPhotography.com, and he is a... Um, a creative portrait photographer, and he does a lot of advertising and editorial work uh, within the entertainment industry and uh, various other advertising clients. He is one of the Canon Explorers of Light, as well as um, a member of other groups, and inter- many, many international awards to his credit. Uh, if you go to his website at michaelgrecophotography.com, Greco is spelled G-R-E-C-C-O, uh, you'll see a lot of images that I'm sure you'll recognize if you read any photo magazines at all. Um, he's been in so many photo annuals and advertisements that uh, I'm really honored to have him on the show with us to talk about his uh, captivating style of light. Uh, he reminds me a lot of uh, the type of lighting that I aspire to create. So it's really great to have him on the show. Yeah, and if if you look at Michael's work at all, it'll be very clear. And actually, once you listen to this interview as well, it's very clear to, to see why he is who he is. Um, it's just, it's kind of an honor to even have him on the show. I think he's, uh, he's that good. Yeah. I definitely qualify him as one of the, he definitely is a master of light. Uh, we have a lot of masters of light on our last, on our, on our recent shows. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I like listening to these. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> I feel like I make them for myself sometimes, but I know that you guys out there like to listen to them as well. <laughs> and that's evidenced by how busy the Flickr forums are. Yeah, they're jumping. It's been really neat to see um, a lot of people are putting into practice some of the things that we talk about on the show. Uh, some folks are trying out the Joel Edelman 2 fluorescent light technique and uh, just getting some good exchange in there. So it's cool. And we're having a lot of past guests on the show uh, are coming back and popping up in different forums, uh, as well as Kurt Foklane and David Tejada showing up in the Joe Edelman forum. So it's it's really interesting to see uh, alumni of the show showing up on uh, discussion groups as well. Yeah, that's for sure. So if you haven't checked out the Light Source Flickr group at flickr.com slash groups slash light source, then I definitely suggest you head on over there and uh, throw up your images and get some good discussion going. Well, speaking of forums and Kurt Volklein, uh you had a chance to check out proforum.com and you were telling me about it the other night and it sounds uh sounds pretty interesting. I got to say, I was very impressed. I had since we had our talk with Kirk, uh who runs the Pro Forum and that's by the way pro the number 4 um.com. Uh Kirk just is running an outstanding resource there. I couldn't believe how much information was in there. I guess that's what you get when you have a 10-year-old forum with most of its members being professional portrait photographers. There's just all sorts of business tips flying around and marketing tips and sample images to look at and learn from, and the community is just wonderful there. So if any of you guys have not taken advantage of the offer to get a discount on your annual membership at the Pro Forum, I highly recommend that. It sounds like it's really, really interesting as well because it's like um, a lot of the forums that are out there. I mean, there are some very active forums on the internet, 
Um, however, it sounds like this one's very focused towards the people that are uh, in the business already and people who are making money and sharing different ways to expand their business and almost more of a, a marketing aspect of it and keeping their businesses alive sort of thing. Yeah, it really is. And it's the kind of environment where you can ask absolutely any question and you're going to get some great answers. So check that out. Oh, that's great. We'd also like to say a uh, welcome to everyone that's joined us from Photoshop TV. Um, Matt Kluskowski listed us as uh, in his assignment to do for the week um, to check out studiolighting.net. And uh, he, he really was not kidding when he was talking about them on the show. We did kind of pop out of nowhere when we saw him and we're like, hey, Matt. Yeah, that was cool. We got a chance to talk about some lighting stuff that day. And uh, Matt's just a really cool guy. He runs the tutorials a lot on Photoshop TV, but he also has a new podcast about Lightroom, which is uh, Lightroom Killer Tips. And it's at Lightroom Killer, is it LightroomTips.com? Yeah. So I guess the the last thing I kind of wanted to do before we get into this uh, really juicy interview that we have lined up for tonight is to talk a little bit about, since Christmas is coming, some of the things that we've been talking about purchasing for each other. Yes, definitely. Um, there's a lot of uh, gifts out there, lots of things that we saw at Photo Plus Expo and uh, things that we've seen on the Internet that cover a whole price range of uh, of products and probably starting at some of the uh, the lower-end price products, kind of like in that uh, around $50 and under price range because, you know, it's it's always good when you're doing a, you know, a company gift exchange bill <clears throat> that we uh, <laughs> put a price limit on things. I agree. I think a price limit's a good idea in this situation. And with photography equipment, you can't put it at $10 because, you know, you'd end up with like a lens cleaning cloth or something like that. Yeah, you're right. Or like a... Uh, or one of my prints, you know, or something like that. <laughs> right. you know, Four by six. <laughs> well, actually, those aren't even $10. Oh, so, you know. <laughs> that's not going to work. So what are some things that people could get for under $50? Well, let's see. Probably, well, DVDs are always a good thing, being that we're talking about education and, and you know, I'm always looking to get better with my lighting. Um, I borrowed one of the Dean Collins video series from a friend of mine. It was an old VHS, and it was really good. And I've seen it at SoftwareCinema.com. They have a best of Dean Collins lighting DVD. And... Um, from what I've seen of some of his stuff and uh, read about him and his reputation in the industry, I think that would probably be an excellent for uh, anyone that wants to get better at studio lighting. I agree. Another good DVD, since we're talking about DVDs, would probably be the latest ShootSmarter.com lighting DVD, which is digital lighting techniques with Christopher Gray, who's been a guest on LightSource and uh, has a really outstanding DVD as well. And and he came up and said hi at Photo Plus. That's right. So, <laughs> so yeah, we love Christopher for many reasons. Uh, I, his book that we he had out, um, uh, the Master Digital Lighting Guide, I've always referred to as my Bible on lighting. So I can't imagine that the the DVD um, with his material wouldn't be anything less than excellent. Yep, and it's right around fifty dollars. So that's uh, fits into this category. Um, speaking of ShootSmarter.com could probably pick up a balance smarter a white balance tool as well while you're over there yeah which is in the same nice. price range. those are really nice i i have something very similar and we talked about this on a previous show and i i like some of the features that they have in the balance smarter one so yeah that would definitely be a good one as well um in addition on that price scale magazines are always good you know some people don't you know 
like to sit in front of the TV all the time and they like to take something wherever they're going to read. Two magazines that I would recommend subscriptions for um, is PDN and Digital Photo Pro. Um, they're probably one of the two magazines that when I'm at a newsstand and I and I look through, if, if I see a new issue, I won't even flip through it. I'll just pick it up and buy it. Nice. Yeah, so I, I recommend those two for uh, PDN, Photo District News, and um, Digital Photo Pro. I think that's a cool gift, too, because, uh, you know, kind of goes throughout the rest of the year. It's not just one day. Kind of yes, that keeps on giving. Isn't it trademarked? I think it might be. I'm not sure. I'll have to look that up. Yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, going up the scale a little bit, um, you know, there's always options like the photo or the expo disc. That's a good option. In the same price range, you might consider as well something like the Alien B trigger, flash triggers that just came out. Get you uh, four channels of wireless goodness. Ah, yes. And, you know, there's safety features as well, you know, so that way, you know, the person that's doing the shooting isn't tripping over cables and destroying oh. expensive lighting equipment that they that they spent all their... Uh, who am I kidding? They're just cool. They're <laughs> Still, the safety aspect is a good angle if you're trying to, you know... Yeah, if you're trying to win over the person that's that's buying you this gift and you can say, wow, you know... It's good for the family. Yeah, there we go. It, it protects <laughs> the investment that we've put into this valuable that's right. gear that's earning us I should be in politics <laughs> you should be <laughs> well um, another gift in this price range might be uh, a Roscoe creative gel kit so somebody can start experimenting with color and uh, you know throw in some blue or red onto a seamless background gels are so much fun to mess with they are now I think the kit that, that we've been playing with is a corrective lighting kit which is great, and it's it's really nice, but I don't think that it has the um, as color changing ability as the Creative Kit does. Right. Yeah, it's more for just adjusting to mixed light conditions, uh, balancing your strobe to tungsten light or room light or you know that sort of thing, fluorescent light. But if you're looking to play with color backgrounds and that sort of thing, then you would want to look at the Creative Kit. And if you're ever if you're curious about other Roscoe products, there was an episode in in our back catalog where we talked with uh, some of them Roscoe for some of their uh, a bunch of their products. So if you're curious about that, check that episode out for more information. Um, but you, kind of as our price as our prices are going up here a little bit, Bill. Yeah, I think that's where we can talk about some more higher end gifts. Why not? Well, we, you might have some folks out there, Ed, that are looking for ways to spend all the money that they got for Christmas. So do you have any ideas for that? Well, let's see. Um, uh, well, actually, some that are very good. Um, I got an email offer the other day, and I think the offer is on the site as well, that if you're interested in uh, digital asset management software, um, iView Media Pro is running some sales right now for the holiday, and ACDC Pro is doing a buy one get one gift offer so that you you buy an ACDC Pro for yourself and you get a gift wrapped version that you can give to your um your podcast co I mean your friend <laughs> that is a photographer as well. That's cool. That's definitely a good gift. Well I was thinking that definitely one product that's in that price range as well, which we have to mention, is the Alien B ABR eight hundred ring flash that came out this year. Ah, a fun light to play with. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's something that I think everybody should have laying around the studio or at least get a chance to play with once. Um, and it's reasonably priced, so be it. make a nice nice gift. And in addition to the the Ring Flash itself, is uh, the Moon Unit is supposed to be shipping uh, next week, which is, uh, for those of you who don't pick this up right away, it would be the first week of December is when it's supposed to be on the Alien Bees website. So look for that as a as an for the people who either have the ring flash already or people who are looking at picking it up. Uh, the moon unit is the thirty inch soft box that you can that has a hole through the center that you can still continue to shoot with, and you can also purchase masks for it as well to change the the type of reflection that's coming off of the front. Whether you want a classic thin large uh, ring flash look or whether you want to go with uh, some more obscure reflections such as like a sunrise or a half moon crescent or um, clouds or stars or and there and there's I think the kit even comes with uh, four blank ones that you you can cut any pattern that you would like to that's very cool so I think the kit is under it's under ninety dollars so um, that's gonna be definitely something to check out on alienbees.com yeah, no doubt. And that, and that's going to make that light even more versatile. Uh, so it's just, it's going to be really something cool to have around, I think. Um, while we're talking about flashes, we should also probably mention the new Photoflex Star Flash, which, uh, is turning out to be a pretty nice light for, in, in a similar price range for someone who's looking to get into, um, mono lights at that level. It's uh, definitely something to check out. Yeah, it's built really well. I like the handle on the back of it that you can, uh, you can kind of grab it and move it around and things like that. Um, but I also love the Photoflex uh, modifiers um, that you can, the, the versatility of them and the different things that you can buy. And probably the biggest thing I like about the Photoflex softboxes is they have a lip that goes around the edge so you can kill some of the spill off of them. And you can attach grids to them. That's very nice cool. Nice big fabric grids are really cool. Absolutely, and I, I we'll, we'll even be talking to Michael Greco a little bit about that later. So yeah, there's the so there are those lighting lighting modifiers or lighting equipment. Um, anything that we talk about after this is probably just going to get um, into the absurd price range where we're you know. So before we you know get into talking about brown color paras or <laughs> you know, Epson P three thousand or five thousands or or you know Canon one DS Mark twos or Nikon D two Xs or or any of those dream gadgets, uh, we should probably just hop right into our interview. I agree. Um, and as we get over, as we're playing a little music interlude, uh, fire up your browser if you're near your computer, and type in www.michaelgrecophotography.com, and uh, his middle or his last name is spelled Greco, G-R-E-C-C-O. And while you're listening to the interview, keep your ears peeled because there's one more Christmas gift which we highly recommend that Michael will talk about toward the end of the interview. On tonight's edition of The Light Source, we uh, are excited to present uh, Michael Greco, a uh, professional photographer. He's done advertising, editorial, commercial work. Uh, he's known for his dynamic portraiture and capturing the essence of his subjects. He's also one of the Canon Explorers of Light and a Hasselblad Master's Nationwide Lecture Program. Uh, he's won many, many international photo awards, and looking through his portfolio, I find myself saying, oh, I've seen that, seen that, love that one, love that one. <laughs> so it's great to have you on the show, Michael. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. 
Now, if our listeners remember, I believe it was on the, one of the either the last show or the previous show, we had talked about one of the uh, features we had seen on you in Studio Photographer, and when you did a shoot with Martin Scorsese and you set up the still camera on the side and captured the movie of the actual shot. That was a brilliant idea. Uh, where do you come up with things like that? Well, I, I'll take a little seed of an idea and figure out how I can use it. My retoucher mentioned it to me, the woman that we use to do a lot of our company retouching. She said, hey, you know, did you know that in QuickTime you can stitch together a sequence of images and make a, uh, a movie? And then my, you know, then my mind started reeling with that. And I was like, I, I try to approach my life and my business and my photography as a total creative experience. Like, there's always got to be a solution to a problem. There's, you know, and to me, being able to do those movies and show people what I do is almost a marketing tool. So I'm thinking, well, geez, if people can understand what I do or I can show people the complexity of my shoots or I can bring people to a website and, and uh, entertain them, that's a form of education. It's a form of marketing. It's an experience. So we're doing a lot of them. We just shot Penelope Cruz and Pedro Almondovar for time, and Time put one on their website. We're doing some work for the Time year-end issue tomorrow morning, and we'll do another movie, and this time we're going to have a videographer there to get some live footage, and we're going to intercut that with the stop-action footage. And I'm going to try two cameras tomorrow instead of one. Oh, nice. So. I just watched the Time video, and it's, it's, just, it's very intriguing to watch you guys set up and break down you know, that quickly. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Well, that quickly is over, of exactly. course, of four hours or five hours, but, <laughs> yeah, I mean, and a lot of waiting in between. You know, are they here yet? Are they here yet? So yeah, it's cool. You can see the assistant sitting on the couch and you know checking, texting. The- <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I, I, I love caught the- him texting. <laughs> <laughs> I love the Scorsese one. It seems like there was like three quarters of it was like, all right, set up. Oh, there's another person in doing a test. Oh, there's another person doing a test. Oh, there's another test, and then it's like finally, it's like. And here's Martin, boom, 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 and he's gone. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, the interesting thing, you know, that's another, we edit that video, and I don't change the order of stuff going on, but I'll edit out the dead space. No one needs to see the dead space. But, sure. So I'll take those stills, I'll get rid of the images that have no one in them, and it's interesting, because as you see it, there's a setup, then we go inside and we set up, the gray seamless situation and then somebody comes outside and we you know we work on this for a little while and again over over the course of four or five hours with all the setup and the preparation then you have martin you have i have him 15 minutes inside and 15 minutes outside and that's it you know so it's interesting because you almost the way we frame that first that was the very first one we did and the way we framed it he's small enough in it and as you mentioned he's through it quick enough that if you you know if you're not paying attention you're like where's scorsese (laughs) so well you you mentioned that creativity is a huge part of your career and that's really clear to anybody who follows your portfolio and and your work at all how did it all get started though how long have you been at this and and what, what was the beginning like well, I've been doing this a long time. I, I went to college. I went to film school because in high school I was I was working on photography, and even in in uh, junior high, I was interested in photography. And possibly, you know, my I, I forget exactly when, but yeah, I guess it was junior high. I was interested in photography, and I went to college thinking, of course, at that age, that I knew it all because I'd printed for years, I'd printed my own work, um, and I was into art photography. And I went to college as a film student, 
at Boston University, knowing that I could study photography there if I wanted to, but I wanted to learn something different because I thought I knew it all as a photographer. And then I took a photojournalism class, and it sort of blew my mind and opened my eyes to the possibilities of experience and travel. And So I started out as a photojournalist, in the blizzard of 1978, working for the Associated Press as a uh, freshman in college or a sophomore in college. And from that point on, I worked for the Associated Press and Time and Newsweek covering news, and then eventually the Boston Herald. And then I moved out to Los Angeles and worked for People magazine, all in in the auspices of a photojournalism. So till about 1992... I worked basically as a news photographer. So for 14 years, I, I worked as a news photographer. And then I decided I hated it. <laughs> it like, creatively, it wasn't creative. I was, I was capturing images instead of creating them. And I, and I wanted to make a total alteration to my career. It, I did it because it was exciting. You know, I grew up in suburbia, lived a relatively sheltered life, traveled, you know, w- was in New York City a lot as a kid. And, and I wanted to travel and experience things and have this excitement. It's like joining the Navy, right? And it's like traveling with the president and covering news and and doing all sorts of interesting things, covering a demonstration and being at the World Series and the Super Bowl and the NBA playoffs. And But then I realized it wasn't fulfilling me creatively. It wasn't fulfilling my heart. It wasn't where my artistic passion lied. So, you know, I had to make a, I just had to make a, a career change. And then I decided I wanted to do sort of creative portraiture. So you just decided to totally change your clients and switch it up, or how? How did that? Well, I go? didn't. I, I w- you know, I was working three days a week for People Magazine, and I wouldn't have changed my clients. They changed. They they changed. They were like, "Well, you're a really good photojournalist. I don't know if you could do our portraits and our covers." You know, they sort of had this attitude that I wanted to do this artsy fartsy portrait work, but I was their photojournalist. So for years, they actually stopped using me, and I stopped going to them as a client because I was thought of as that People Magazine guy that did those People Magazine setup. And then after many years, we worked together again on special issues and places that they use creative portraiture. So it was a combination of me turning down clients and clients thinking, okay, we know you for X, but we don't know if you can do Y and we're not going to use you for Y. That's a hard transition to make. It is a hard transition to make. And it was, you know, in a lot of ways, it was a costly transition to make. And But, you know, the worst thing is to continue working and not being satisfied with what you're doing. I was just thinking that. And, you know, I love what you said about having an image there for you and you just take the picture versus creating the image. It's very obvious that you spend a lot of time actually planning out your images and your, your portraits are well known for the drama that, that you portray in them. Could you define your style for us a little bit? Um, the name of my new book sort of sums it up, Lighting and the Dramatic Portrait. That's And that's sort of been the seminar I've taught at Photo East and in Santa Fe and Maine and the Palm Beach Photo Workshops. That's been the title of the seminar, Lighting and the Dramatic Portrait. And that sort of sums it up. I mean, I use the elements of conceptualism and light and shadow. And I, I try to come up with a thoughtful storytelling portrait. That's my modus operandi. That's what I 
seek out when I when I do a picture. And I'm I'm not saying that photojournalism isn't creative. It just wasn't the type of creativity that I was interested in. I mean, you look at a photojournalist like uh, Antonin Cretacville or Eugene Richard, and they're they're brilliant at what they do. Nockway, James Nockway. I mean, those guys are brilliant at what they do. It wasn't the type of creativity I was interested in. I grew up being in New York City in the 70s, being very interested in jazz and conceptual art. And going to the Leo Castelli Gallery as a kid and seeing conceptual art that would blow my mind, listening to jazz that would do the same, it was just free form, blow your mind. You know, I was a kid at 14 years old at the Village Vanguard seeing people like Keith Jarrett and Chick Corea. And coming from that background, I wanted more freedom. You know, I wanted to be able to create what was in my mind and what was playing in my head, not necessarily try to figure out the artistic angle and tell a photojournalistic kind of story. Speaking about this, how what you have in your head, when you come to a shoot, or actually when a client comes to you for a shoot, how much art direction are you giving and how much are you injecting your own art direction into the shoot? It really depends. I mean... The worst thing that could happen is when someone comes to me and asks me to do something that is not right for me. You know, then, you know, happy, bright, backlit, fuzzy, you know, fuzzy, soft <laughs> lifestyle pictures of kids. If you came to me to do that, unless you're paying me so much money that, you know, <laughs> I just don't care. Um, I take every job as a challenge, and every situation is different. I mean, it all depends on who you're collaborating with. Some people give you free reign or close to it. You know, when I work with people at Time Magazine, we'll throw out ideas. The different magazines I've worked for over the years, you, you, you know, you go back and forth, and it's a collaboration. It's like I'm there to input ideas and to give suggestions, and I've had people say, you know, I don't care, just come back with a good picture. It all depends. I mean, I've had ad agencies, people go, oh, ad work, there's always a layout, and you always have to shoot to the layout. Well, I mean, I've changed the layouts. You know, one of the pictures I have, I think it's on the website of a, of a guy for the propane ad campaign. I've seen that one, yeah. Yeah, and the ad had this guy's hand under the hot water of a shower, and he's feeling the joy, there's a smile on his face, that he's experiencing the hot water. And I'm like, that's kind of, you know, it's, it, it was the start of a concept for me. I mean, that's wh how a lot of it works out. It's like, it's the start of the, of the concept. And then I'm, I, it's, I'm there to take it to the next level. It's like, I put him in the shower. We got him a rubber ducky, you know. He's <laughs> soaking wet, fully dressed, you know. There's a sense of humor to it. And a lot of the cases... I'm either given a concept or a layout and I take it further or I use the essence of the person, who the person is, what they've done. You know, I, I do use the research about the person to be the start of my concept and then we start working concepts from there. I noticed uh, in a couple of places you have talked about in the past how you get your subjects involved too. Is that a big part of your uh, photography? Um. It all depends. I mean, I, I like to get my subjects involved when they're there. I don't like to get my subjects involved usually too far out ahead because I worry that, you know, the subject is going to ponder the concept too much and alter the whole idea 180 degrees from what the magazine and I want to achieve. 
So I try to get them involved there. But it all depends. I mean, it all depends on who you're dealing with, and you sort of have to feel it out and use your intuition. You know, you're dealing with businessmen or people that don't get what you're doing until they see it. Then I want to get them involved when they can see it and understand it. If you're dealing with Steve Martin and he's sort of a brilliant, he, he sees visually and is a brilliant comic, then I can see ideas back and forth with him. Okay. So it all depends, and, and I, I use the 20, I have to calculate this, the 28 years, 29 years of experience, soon to be 29 years of experience I have. I started as a child. I was a baby when I started, so I'm not that old. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, I, I saw a picture of you. I thought you looked fairly young. I'm surprised to hear you say you were in the well, industry for 28 years. I'm 13 years old at heart, so. That's awesome. I, I'll take the knowledge and experience and the intellectual part of what I have, but then I'm really a firm believer of using my intuition. My intuition guides me. It's like I've had a meditation practice for 20 years. I, I try to be in touch with that intuition as a creative person, and we'll use that to figure out you know, when the right time is to get someone involved, who gets involved, who doesn't, that sort of thing. Speaking of getting people involved, you have a project on your website that you talk about. It is the, um, do you have a title for the project? I know that the caption on it starts out as Michael as the Hunter. That's sort of my, like my found people series. That's sort of my people on Venice Beach, people that, I, that I've shot, interesting people that I find. It's sort of like me looking for real people and hunting down these real people and starting a little portfolio or a little collection of pictures of these people. It might wind up being a book someday. It might wind up... I don't know what it's going to wind up being at this point. That's a really nice collection so far, what you what you have started on there. Thank um, you. How do you approach these people in public? Because I know myself and I know some of the other photographers that I deal with, they have issues with breaking down that barrier of getting somebody from being just someone on the street to you know a collaborator on a piece of work like this. Um, the most important thing is, is people sense fear like dogs do. And if you're intimidated and you can't stop someone on the street or, you're, or you beat around the bush or you can't look someone in the eye and say, hey, I'm doing this project. It might be a book, but I'm doing this project. Can I photograph you? You know, if you can't do that and you're like, well, what do you think? Um, I'm thinking of you. You can't. You won't have people's trust. You have to trust in yourself for them to trust in you. So, I mean, I don't have a problem with it because I, just because of the years of experience. I mean, I remember getting thrown out on the street when I worked at the Boston Herald in the early '80s and having to do man on the street interviews. And your first couple of them are tough, but then after you've done 20 of them, you know, a couple of months you know, and you've worked at a newspaper for four years, it, it was always interesting to see the intern who was just out of college, just out of journalism school, asked to do the reporting. And these man-on-the-street interviews would always happen when some crisis happened in the world, and you wanted to hear people's take on it from Boston. And you'd be stopping people. This was always at 5 o'clock at night, and you'd be stopping people trying to get home, catch the subway and catch the train. And you'd watch this 22-year-old intern with very little experience going, excuse me, ma'am, uh, 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 would you? And the boom, they kept passing. So we'd have a joke in the photo department, 
and, and we were always on overtime, and we'd always want to get home. So when the boss came in and handed you the slip that says that you're doing man on the street with, uh, with Bill, and you, you roll your eyes, and your guys would look at you and go, how long are you going to give him? And you'd, you'd go, about three minutes. And you'd give Bill three minutes, and he'd try to stop 20 people, and they'd all blow him off. And then you'd show Bill how it's done. You would literally get in front of them. You know, you, you'd get your you'd spiel down. You'd get in front of them and go, hey, my name is Michael Greco. I'm a staff photographer with the Boston Herald. I want to ask you one question. Can I ask you a question? It'll take you three minutes, and you'll, you'll be done. I'll make sure you catch your train. And if they said no, you'd just let them go. And if they said yes, you'd shoot their picture while the, while the reporter was interviewing them. You'd make sure that, that you did what you said you would. And you'd get them going. And you'd just you'd bang them out. And you'd have confidence, but you'd get in their face. You'd look them in the eye. You'd listen to whether they could do it or not. And that's the basis of stopping anyone in the street. You have to be a good listener. You have to have confidence in yourself. You have to communicate well. You have to tell them exactly what you want. And, and in that, I tell them exactly what's expected of them. I need you for 10 minutes. We're going to set up. I'm going to pull a Polaroid. The Polaroid's going to take a minute or two minutes. When I'm pulled a Polaroid, I'm going to shoot four rolls of film. Do you have 15 minutes for me? And I'll need you to sign a release. And if they don't, you let them go. Yeah. If they do, great. You know, you've got a subject. And most people say yes. Do they really? Most people say yes? Most people say yes. That's cool. Most people are flattered. <laughs> I mean, they say yes because you have confidence and they could tell you know what you're doing right away. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, Michael, how is that different when you're trying to break down a similar barrier with, say, a celebrity or a CEO? Is it similar? Well, with a celebrity or CEO, I mean, the best thing that I know of is trying to connect right away. Like, so in hair and makeup, I'll go in and I'll try to connect with my subject right away. And I'll try to find what common ground we have. I'll try to find what, you know, what their interests are. I'll, I'll try to talk with them about something that I know of that they're interested in. You know, if it's a CEO and I'm talking about the market or if it's an actress and I'm talking about a show or fashion or, you know, and I try to find that common ground and I try to bond with my subject. But it's the same skills. You have to be a good listener. I mean, you have to be able to hear them. And people just, I mean, people are people. They want to be, you have to be down to earth with them. And they, they want to feel like they're, they're heard. And any, any photographer that can listen, I, I trust you, 99% of the people would love to just be heard and, and be able to talk. And so you really have to listen. And then, you, you know, if someone's telling you they don't want to do something, I try to figure out what their objection is to it, but ultimately, if it's not going to work and you can't solve it, then you have to listen to that. You have to figure out something else. They're the same basic skills in photography that they are in life. You have to, you know, you have to be open, you have to listen, you have to communicate. Photography is a tough profession these days. It's very, very difficult. It's very competitive. There are a million photographers. There are a million good photographers. And I think the skills that you need to be successful are all those skills you need to be successful in life. I know, and, and this person is a very, very good friend of mine. I love him dearly. He's a famous fashion shooter and at the same time has taken historic pictures and at the same time, because people find him difficult to communicate with sometimes, 
that it's hard for him to get work. Mm. So you could be the, the, the best photographer in the world, but if you consistently piss everyone off all the time or consistently have communication difficulties or, or you know, all of that, I think you'll find it difficult to be f- as successful as you possibly could be. Makes sense in photography as well as uh, other forms of business as well. Getting into lighting, though, we've had some photographers on the show who have um, uh, guys have ran the gamut of, you know, favoring uh, speed light setups, wireless. Some guys prefer Home Depot, homemade ring lights. We've had guys that are uh, using bronze color para setups. One of my favorite quotes is one of our photographers had said that um, he despised soft boxes. Do you categorize your lighting in any specific way, or do you kind of focus it for uh, whatever the mood of the image that you're trying to pull off? Well, I look at it this way, and I look at it in a very pragmatic way, and I've always looked at it this way, and I've actually, I was with Albert Watson in Santa Fe. I actually took a course with him 12 years ago, 94, 95, and he said the same thing that I, that I knew, and the lights are tools. What you do with them is what's important, but the lights are tools. And what I mean by that, and and this is the best analogy, in the late 90s, there were photographers whose whole look was built upon a light source, the ring light. There were a half dozen photographers who built their entire look around a ring light. And there was one photographer in particular, I'm not going to mention that person's name, but their whole style was built around a, a ring light, and it was the ring light. And it wasn't even very flattering. It was kind of because it was used in such a obvious manner. And a light doesn't make your style, right, uh, to me. The light is the tool. It's like how big of a chisel do you want to use? Well, it depends on what I'm lighting, right, or what, what piece of wood I'm, I'm working on. So a, a softbox isn't inherently bad or good. A softbox is a tool. A ring light isn't inherently bad or good. A ring light is a tool. It has a look. The question is, is do you want to use that look or do you not want to use that look? My look is about saturation, about having shadow, about having richness and depth. I mean, when I shot a lot of black and white and I was known for my black and white, my look was about shadow as much as it was about light. So I don't rule anything out. Now, I didn't use soft boxes as much when soft box light was hard to control. And over the years, you know, and I was one of the first people, or, I, or not one of the first people because they had them for a while, but when they had metal grids for soft boxes, um, I was one of the first people to use those. And they were extremely clumsy. The soft box would fall down. They were hard to keep the box up. And then when Light Tools, the guys from Light Tools, invented those fabric egg crates, now I have a soft box. It's a grid spot, but it's softer. Now, do I use that all the time because it's softer? No, because maybe the interest in a picture, you know, for a woman celebrity, maybe using a gridded softbox is the right thing, but for the business guy who has decent skin, that edge, that hardness of a, of a hard light, of a real grid spot is better, but, you know, it gives you that edge and power that you wouldn't get from a gridded softbox. So it's a tool. It's like, you have to have the vision first and use the proper tool to accommodate that vision. It's jazz. 
You know, you have to have the notes in your head, and then, and then whether you play them soft or hard, or like this particular instrument or that particular instrument, well, you grab the instrument for whatever the song is. That's a great analogy. That's awesome. <laughs> you know, to, to say I use this and I have to use that, and it's, that's all bullshit. It's all bullshit. It's like, <laughs> use, use what helps you communicate the vision, because I had a, an assistant of mine years ago who lit with grid spots, and she did this beautiful beautiful, beautiful lighting with little grids. And, and she would light someone's face with several grids in different spots and like different parts of the face. And her work's beautiful, and it's beautiful to this day. And she said, well, I had to light eight people. And I thought, oh, my God, I know what's coming next. Because she was almost in tears. It was one of her first big magazine assignments. And I said, don't tell me you tried to light all eight of them with grid spots. <laughs> She said, yeah, I had 16 grid spots. Wow. And I was like, oh, my God, you know? And she couldn't do it. She had enough assistance. And, but, you know, with a three-degree grid spot, if one person moved, the whole, and she's shooting four by five, the whole shot's blown. Okay, so do a dramatic lighting with a, with a couple of soft boxes that cover a little more area or figure out another way. Underlight them. Do something that gives you the edge and the look, but using shooting eight people it, to say I only use three-degree grid spots, it ain't going to work. That makes a lot of sense. It's pretty clear, too, that you're also saying that having a vision going into the photo is, is critical. Would you go that far? Yes. And, and that, vision could be, that vision could be a feel. Like, what's the feel? What's the quality? What's your intuition say? What's your emotions say about it? You know, that vision could be just simply a feel. Okay. And then the, the technical understanding of your lighting equipment then comes in behind and helps you carry that vision through? Absolutely. Absolutely. But here's something else to understand. And, and when I teach, when I teach in, in Palm Beach or when I'm, wherever I'm teaching, the thing to understand is, is I learned a lot. I mean, the interesting thing is when I moved to L.A., besides being, doing some photojournalism, I did some unit photography, which being on a movie set but being the fly on the wall, it's like photojournalism with a sound blimp so that they don't hear you, doing coverage of what they're shooting on the movie. And I did that on movie sets, and I learned a lot because I would observe. I was always fascinated by lighting, and I would observe what the guys on the set and the men and women in the, of the grip and electric department were doing. So I got that experience, but I learned lighting by looking, and that sounds silly, but, you know, my first few assignments when I decided I was going to do interesting portraiture and not photojournalism and light stuff, I would shoot eight, ten packs, of, double packs of Polaroid. You know, do the math on that. You have, you know, eight double packs and there's eight to a pack and you're shooting 16 packs times eight. <laughs> I mean, I guess what I'm saying is I was just looking at what I was doing and, you know, saying, okay, do I like this better or do I like this better? Do I like this better? You don't have to be a genius and be intimidated. You just have to give yourself a little bit of time to work through it. And I'm a total advocate of never, ever, ever relying on, you know, now it's not Polaroid, it's, it's a digital camera, but I'm an absolute advocate of never, ever, ever doing the type of work I do that's lit or any sort of studio lighting and rely on the chip on the back of the camera. What can you see? What kind of decisions can you make? What kind of nuances can you refine? You can't. 
you can't refine any nuances because that chip is giving you a limited view. It's not giving you a color-managed space where you can see what it is you're doing and see the nuances of where the light's falling and open it up in RAW and see if you're blowing out the highlights and what your contrast ratio is and seeing if you're getting noise in your shadow and if you're clipping any blacks. and You're really not seeing anything. The only way to do it these days for me is to have a color-calibrated monitor and open up your file. We open up our file and do two things. We open up the file and make sure the file can give me what I want in the look and the feel. But I also open up the file and make sure the negative is going to be printable. And what I mean by that is, is I might not shoot the file to the look. I'm going to make sure the file can give me the look, that I can print that look later. But I'm going to shoot the file to give me the best performance out of the chip and out of the file. Okay. So I'm going to do things like light it to make sure I'm not blowing out any highlights and at the same time move my histogram up. If, if I had my druthers, my histogram would be a spike at the top, which are my highlights on the face, and a whole lot of black stuff on the, on the other end. But everyone knows that's not a good, you know, that's not a good histogram. So, you know, I'm making sure I'm not clipping the red channel on people's faces and then I'm making sure I don't shoot everything that's so dark and rich and moody because I worry about noise and detail. So we manipulate that negative, that raw file, that digital negative, and compress things. But I also look at the file to make sure I can get the look and feel I want in the end, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So do you, are you shooting tethered then usually with... Uh, with if I, ha I, I never thought I'd say this, guys, but if I had my druthers, I'd shoot tethered all the time. And when I saw, I had friends who would start working with camera manufacturers and, and, you know, sometimes we're hit up to work with different systems. And I remember, like, Imacon had this belt thing with a monitor and a thing, and this <laughs> company had this thing. And I thought, who the hell would ever want to be? The belt thing was a bit much, but... The belt pack with the batteries and the monitor and your that was a bit much. But I thought, who the hell would ever, we, we've never had a shoot with a cable before, who would want to do that? And then I see what that's about and what it means, and it's, it's live feedback. Right. So if I had my druthers now, where I thought it would, was the death of photography, I think it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. It's shooting tethered is my preference always. Wow. Do you also sometimes choose for certain clients or certain images a different type of digital back or something that would give you more Im like color depth because you want that flexibility or is you know they what well, I'm using a leaf uh, Aptis and it, it kicks ass and I'm using a 1DS Mark Mark II and it kicks ass and I, I use them not for I mean at 12 and 14 bits my retoucher and I were discussing this that I used to have, when p things were scanned, I'd have the lab scan 16-bit all the time because the guy at the lab didn't understand my vision. And by the time I added my vision to an 8-bit file, I had banding. Right. So I would make them scan 16-bit. And, you know, a lot of guys, a lot, some of the labs, we had a problem with a lab where they would scan in 8-bit and try to match the file later in Photoshop because their scanner didn't do 16, and I'd get the file with banding in it. 
<laughs> they try to match the contact sheet, and I'd get a file with banding already in it for me. It was very nice. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, That's it was probably lovely. Extra feature. <laughs> <laughs> so we, what we do is, in RAW, we get the file, we process the file the way I need it to look, and ride that line of my dramatic lighting and look to making sure it's reproducible. And we do that in RAW. And look, a RAW 12-bit or a RAW 14-bit in either camera, those files are gorgeous. Shot right, those files are gorgeous. So, but what I do use the cameras for is, let's say I can't shoot tethered, you know, and I'm in the ocean shooting um, volleyball players for, for uh, you know, a calendar, and the women of beach volleyball, and I've got waves splashing at me, you know, that's probably not the time to use the leaf with the, with the H1 and the one focusing spot and the tethered cable. Like the cannon kicks butt there, right? You're on the beach, you've got sand going. If I have to shoot the card, I will. You know, I'm in the studio, though, and I want the longer lenses, and I, I'm in a studio situation, that's my, maybe where I'll use the leaf. If I have to shoot a lot of images, I've, I've worked on a couple of stock projects and a, and a couple of book projects where I'm shooting 3,000 images a day, and I'm shooting Canon just for the, for the simplicity of autofocus and the flexibility of the camera. So I, I don't approach it by the look of the file, because I know I can get the look out of both of those cameras. But I approach it on what the cameras, how the cameras perform and what they do. So they're just a tool as well? They're just a tool as well, yes. I mean, uh, I'm approaching it, though. One tool, the lenses are a little short, shorter, and you don't, get, you, know, you don't get the compression that I like of a medium-format camera, but the camera is you know, faster to handle and has the 20 focusing points or whatever the 1DS Mark II has, and, and it just it handles faster, and it, it works better in some situations, and then the, the leaf works better in other situations. That's great. Do you ever pull out film still? I think in the past two and a half years, uh, two clients have asked for film, and wow. I've shot some film. And I'll shoot some film personally just to, like, empty it out of my refrigerator. <laughs> so I still have film. I'm trying to get rid of the refrigerator and save electricity. <laughs> That's a good way to go. I can see this now five years from now. We'll be saying, oh, what am I going to do with all these old hard drives? Yeah. <laughs> you probably will. <laughs> you did say something that I didn't want to lose. You, you mentioned that your, your ideal histogram would have a, a peak uh, on the high end for the face. Do you do you focus a lot of your lighting on the face in your portraits, even if they're like a full figure or three quarter? Is that an important part of it? Yes, I, I mean that. It almost comes from that newspaper background and that wire service background, where you were burning and dodging, and you were bringing out the face, and the face is the most important feature. And yeah, I, I I do tend to like that way. I mean, I do tend to put the attention into the eyes and and the face and the expression and the moment of of the body language and things like that. It's certainly not the face, certainly the person too. Like the person is lit, but in a lot of cases, my light tends to fall from the face down. Okay. And I'm crafting the light in the situation using the face as the counterpoint, you know, as, as the linchpin of the, of the shot. That makes a lot of sense. So, and then that face, and that's why I say because that's often the brightest spot, that's my, that's my peak in that histogram, that's where I want to make sure I'm not blowing out the red channel. Because then you, you have a lot of retouching. If you, if you tweak the color or the color temperature at all of the image, you're going to have some retouching issues. 
Let's talk a little bit about your, your book that just came out. Was it just this November here? The, the book is, just came out. The, my, my book, Lighting in the Dramatic Portrait, um, the official release date was November 1st. And it's been probably available in the, you know, it's been shipping since mid-October. So it's been out a little over a month, and it's been doing really, really well. We hit 161, I think, on the Amazon bestseller list. Oh, way to um, go. Out of 2 million oh, nice. books, that's, <laughs> that's, uh, that's a really good, you know, that's a really good number. And the book has con- been consistently below 2,000, which I guess from what my agent, my book agent told me, anything under 10,000 is a, is a good-selling book. Yeah, that's outstanding. So. I was going to say, I was just looking at the description and uh, some of the stuff on Amazon and, and some of the bundles that they have going on with it, and uh, I just had to forward it to my wife to tell her that uh, I, I need that for Christmas. That's what I did. Mine's on order <laughs> on order for my kids as well. Can you describe the book for us? Like, What was your objective, and what's, what are we going to get? Well, I tried to do something that was a little different. I tried to combine a technical book because I'm, I'm known for my lighting and I, and I know I, I have this expertise and, and have a signature look. So I tried to do half a book that's a technical book and half a book that's a monograph. So the front half of the book starts out with some basics of photography and talking about lenses and formats and digital and film. And then it goes into the creative process and then it goes into just pictures and a lot of full-page pictures. And the last third of the book is full-page pictures. And in that, there's some large, like, th- three-sentence, four-sentence captions on separate pages that tell the stories behind those pictures. Oh, so, wow. we get, you know, we get fairly technical. I talk about HMIs and I talk about uh, Fresnel lights and I talk about uh, optical strobe and I'm, you know, I'm talking about uh, my rules, how I see light, how I pull light apart. I pull light apart in um, things like the shape of it, the color of it, contrast, softness. And I view them, what, how I'm able to pull a photograph apart is I view all those things as separate elements. In other words, I, if I, I look at contrast separately as, then from softness, and I look at color temperature sef- separately from softness and contrast, and I look at the shape of it separately from all, all the other three. And if you could break it apart, you can become, you can come in your, both in your mind and to clients and to subjects and to assistants and to everyone you work with, you can articulate what you want to do. And that's the important thing. To yourself and to everyone else. So the book talks about how I break it apart and why I break it apart and what I'm dealing with. That's great. That sounds like a really great way to lay a book out, too. I can't wait to get my hands on it. And actually, speaking of getting your hands on it, if you go to michaelgreco.com, and we'll put a link to it in the light source here, there are also links to order it direct from uh, Michael Greco Photography, and you can get signed copies as well. So. Yeah, if you'd rather not give Amazon your money and want to give it directly to Michael, you can do that as well. Well, I, I, it's michaelgreco.com slash books. will take you right there. And I think for Christmas, I think in the next week or two, we're going um, to do free shipping. Oh, uh, right now, it's, we've got the shipping and handling. We're probably going to do free shipping to uh, anywhere in the U.S. So That's great. Now, you mentioned, Michael, and I think I read somewhere before 
that you actually were one of the first guys that were trying to put a friend's old lens on a strobe. <laughs> were you successful at that? Um, yeah, I mean, I did that. We, I did that about twelve or fourteen years ago. Um, I bought what I did was I bought, and they were out there. They just weren't used that often. And if you go to most movie sets, not today, but but certainly fifteen years ago, before places like Light Tools came out with the egg crate grids, with a, which a lot of DPs use, a lot of sets were lit with Fresnels. And I started wondering why, and then I started looking at the quality of the light of a Fresnel. And a Fresnel is an interesting thing, because the source is 8 inches, 10 inches, could be 6 inches. So the source is not huge, but it's, it's a decent size. And so that inherently makes it kind of soft, because the source comes from, you know, the softness of a light is relative to, to how large the source is compared to how close it is to the subject. You know, how, how far each point of light wraps around a, a subject is what gives you the soft quality to the light, and I explain that in the book. But a Fresnel is amazingly focusable because it's an actual optical instrument. You know, it has a parabolic mirror in the back, and it has a has a lens, and you can focus it. So now you have this light. You know, especially big Fresnels are are soft because the, some of the lenses get to be, you know, 16 inches, whatever it is. Uh, you know, a big 10K or 12K, the old-fashioned molds. The glass was huge. The light was huge, and but at the same time, you could take that and focus it down to. Uh, a relatively small spot on a wall and shoot it across a room. And that's a tremendous thing. So uh, it, it's this great tool. And what if you're trying to create, actually create shadows and things like that, a Fresnel is great because flooded out, it makes nice shadows. Spotted in, you can focus it across a room. And, you know, now these parabolic umbrellas have become something that a lot of photographers uh, like using, but you'll find the way they get them to be parabolic, and I like them and I've used them, but the way they get them to be parabolic and work is by making a highly speculative surface inside the umbrella. That highly speculative surface actually is kind of harsh. Right. It's got a hardness to it, the quality of it. So, and I define softness differently than quality. The quality of the light is harsh and metallic and shiny, and it's very edgy on skin, possibly in a bad way. Even though it's coming from an umbrella, the quality is very shiny. Now, you could achieve the same thing from a Fresnel, and in doing so, the Fresnel glass is diffused. Okay. It's like it's sandblasted. It's, so the Fresnel glass, in some ways, actually gives you a nicer quality than maybe a parabolic umbrella. And then the guys from the, the manufacturers of those parabolic umbrellas go, well, you could put a diffusion over the front of it to take that harshness off. Well, what happens when you put a diffusion over something that you're focusing? It, gets, it, gets it becomes diffused. a good source. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, again, these are all tools, and the tools are used to create the look that you want to create. And they're not, you know, you need the vision first, and you need to figure out what it is 
that you want, people shouldn't be intimidated by those words. You shouldn't have to say, oh, I need the vision. I don't have the vision. It's like, even if that vision, as I said, is a feeling, do you want Is it a soft, light thing? You, you, do you think of, you know, light, fluffy clouds are you thinking of? Or are you thinking of hard, heavy notes, you know? And okay, so if, you, if, if you're thinking of light, fluffy clouds, probably let's start with softer lights, you know? Let's start with something that's going to be more open. And if you're thinking of heavier notes, then maybe you're thinking of edgier. And, and you can just even use those simple keys to figure out where you want to go. That's great advice. You're correlating your tools to the end product. Yeah, which is, which is important. And you don't have to like fluffy clouds all the time. I mean, there could be times when, you know, you know my, my work, although it, it's rich and it's, I try to make it meaty, it's not always the same one note. I mean, I'd be bored with my work if it was the same one note, so I don't use the same tool all the time. The other reason I'm, I was, we were talking before about me being an advocate of being tethered and shooting Polaroids in the past and looking at a calibrated monitor is it enables a photographer or an artist to start making aesthetic decisions. And once you're able to start making aesthetic decisions, you are able to communicate that style. And you are then able to figure out your own style, but also figure out what, what's working and what's not. And that's why I'm that huge advocate for um, you know, just using the right tool and looking at it at the same time. Like, not just, you know, okay, I know I'm going to do this, but take a look at it. Sometimes you surprise yourself, and when you look at it, it's not what you thought it would be. Oh. You know, we're, we're, in a, we're in a business of looking at images, but people still rely on that little, that little LCD on the back of their camera. Right. A little bit too much, possibly. Yeah, that's what I mean. It's like, if we're, well, if we're in the business of looking at it, spend the time and actually look at it. Like, take a minute and look, look at what you're doing. It's a, like, it's an amazingly simple concept, but it's, I think it's an amazingly powerful concept. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, even just on the small portrait sessions that I've been involved in, sometimes it'll look great on the back of the camera, and as soon as I get back to the studio and dump the, the images, you know, I'm very disappointed. <laughs> it's not what I thought it was. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that it, you know, that it makes a difference. So it's... Uh, it, you really, the way to grow in doing this type of work, I have no magic bullet. Like, I, you, you can't, I can't write something and give you all the answers. I can't do a book and give you all the answers. I can't do this podcast and give you all the answers. I mean, you can pick up the book and you'll learn a lot of tricks, but the books in my lighting and the dramatic portrait, uh, the, the, the suggestions and the tricks in my lighting and the dramatic portrait book are not necessarily the right ones for you or for your job or for whatever, whatever it is. So you need to be able to see what you're doing and discover on your own. And, you know, there, like I said, there's no magic bullet. You've got to discover what's happening with the particular subject that you're shooting, how the light falls, look at it, see what's happening, all that kind of good stuff. I kept waiting for you to say that the book is just another tool. It's well, a manual it, for the tool. It, it, yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a starting point. You know, it's like it's a starting point. You have to know what the possibilities are, but then you, there's a certain amount of discovery that you need to do on your own. It's like if I don't make the pictures my own, I'm not creative, and if I'm not creative, I'm not truly happy. That's a great quote, too. 
Man, we, this episode's full of awesome quotes. I come to put all down in my notebook. Hey, we should we should take or take these series of uh, podcasts that we're doing and just pull out all the great quotes that we're getting because there's so many so many excellent words of wisdom you've dropped here tonight. And we thank you for joining us, Michael. Thank you. It's been fun. I, I appreciate it, guys. Well, that's all we have for this episode of Light Source, the brightest podcast on the internet. Be sure to check out the show notes at studiolighting.net for the things that we talked about on today's show. And there you can also find links about our photography and keep up with the stuff that we've been shooting. And don't forget you can send us feedback or questions about the show to studiolighting at gmail.com. And we'll try to answer those questions on the show or in the lighting questions section on studiolighting.net. You can also get feedback on your photography in our Flickr group, which is at www.flickr.com slash groups slash light source till next time take care check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com photocastnetwork.com